Today's next fantastical foe doesn't look that scary. Instead, she dresses up as whimsical kittens, cozy cottages, or obvious heroes and villains. He will approach you with pleasant platitudes from a church or even from that smiling popular fantasy author. She will shine like an angel of light, telling your heart beautiful lies such as, everyone is basically good and you only need to fight something else. Beware this second fantastical foe, sentimentalism. Welcome again to Fantastical Truth, the realistic podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, co-author of The Pop Culture Parent, and I will not sugarcoat things today. Uh, it's a rough start to this recording after a great event to teach them diligently. Zach and I are back in the studio to resume our Fantastical Faux miniseries. And I'm Zachary Russell, and I used to always call myself a sentimental person, so it's interesting that... It's become a foe. And this is episode 155, How Might Sentimentalism Threaten Christian Fiction? Uh, In this case, we're trying to be as nuanced as possible. Sentimentalism, it's out there, it's lurking, it's sugar-coated. It's not the same thing as clean fiction, yet it sometimes is. We'll get to those differences in just a moment. In short, though, I would say that sentimentalism, the old kind and the new kind, uh, has a way of redefining how we understand the world, understanding concepts such as human beings, the church, and the world. And there are some uh, shared characteristics between what I'll say is the old kind of sentimentalism and the new kind. We will get into those right after we get into our first sponsor for this episode. It is Enclave Publishing again with Candace Cade's science fiction novel, Enhanced. Not at all sentimental. We were actually visiting with Candice over the weekend. She was signing books at our booth at Teach Them Diligently. It's a highly anticipated YA science fiction novel set in the Asian Federation, enhanced by Candice Cade. Lee Urban is living a lie in a society where everyone's DNA determines their destiny. Being a natural means automatic relegation to the gritty and dangerous outskirts. With the harnessed power of gene editing, The ability to create a superhuman race has transformed the world and offered the opportunity of a genetically enhanced life, but only to those who can afford it. Targeted by a hacker bent on exposing her true DNA, Lee Urban faces off with an artificial intelligence game that puts her and her lies to the test. What was supposed to be a dream come true turns into a lethal gamble of hide-and-seek with her genetics. Can Urban continue the act, or will the cracks in her story expose her and endanger her family. Enhanced by Candace Cade, released just a couple of weeks ago from Enclave Publishing, the audiobook is available from Oasis Audio. Learn more at enclavepublishing.com or see the show notes for this episode or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, we've got a few concessions here, uh, only healthy ones. Uh, another form of sentimentality can be with food for sure. I only had a few thoughts here, but you might have had another thought or two while we were putting this episode together, uh, despite the busyness of the weekend at this event. I would say I mentioned clean fiction. We did have an episode already about clean fiction and what we think of it and some of the pros, some of the cons of clean fiction or what we might call wholesome fiction, fiction that is safe for the whole family or supposedly so. We talked about that in episode 81. I would just say real quick, this episode is not so much about that debate. Uh, so if you come in here with a, with a particular position for or against clean fiction, uh, you think that anything but clean fiction has ruined everything or clean fiction is going to fix everything, 
or vice versa. Uh, we addressed that in episode uh, 81. Definitely head there for a sort of accidental prequel to this episode. Finally, I made a difference uh, at the beginning, uh, not so much uh, talking about just one kind of sentimentality here, the old kind that grandma was really into, all the kitschy figurines, the sentimental stuff. Yes, we'll have some things to say about that. I specifically single out uh, one of the motives apparently behind the late artist Thomas Kincaid and his sentimentalist paintings. But we're also going to talk about the modern kind of sentimentality, and we are going to get into what we would call false religion here a particular kind of sentimentalist approach uh, to human nature and whether or not we need Jesus and why, uh, we're going to be very clear about that. So just in case you're coming into this episode from outside biblical Christianity, or maybe you believe you're a biblical Christian, we might step on some toes, but we truly believe it's for our own good and yours. So please be aware, uh, anything that sounds rough, uh, we say it here with the utmost motivation of love and a desire to follow God's word and to proclaim his gospel, uh, even into this world of Christian-made fantastical fiction. Uh, we're not going to go after particular kinds of sentimental Christian fiction. For example, I think the toughest I'll get is on uh, is on Thomas Kincaid, just because I think it's a really good example. And by the way, I don't hate Thomas Kincaid paintings. I don't have negative associations with them. I just found one quote from him really interesting. But we will make some general allusions to some old-style Christian sentimentality uh, and also talk about some vague, uh, vaguely described general trends I do see creeping into newer Christian-made fiction. That's just another form of the old-style sentimentality remade for the modern era. Zach, did you bring any snacks? Anything left over from uh, from the weekend? Oh, just that I I like Thomas Kincaid paintings, so maybe that's my concession. I'm, and, I'm just uh, agnostic about them. I don't have <laughs> any. You know, I'm I'm not going to you know value the family Bible that someone gives you for your wedding. That's like the Thomas Kincaid edition uh, that they already put uh, the dedication and the from and to on the inside, making it absolutely ineligible for regifting, which is kind of a nice little prank there. But I'm not going to hate it. Uh, you know, I'm just not going to think this is art. I, I also must confess that my favorite style of Thomas Kincaid painting is the AI, of course, image generated Star Wars scene painted like a Thomas Kincaid painting, you know, by some robot. Can you tell the difference between an AI Thomas Kincaid <laughs> painting and an actual <laughs> Thomas Kincaid painting? I had to say it. Sorry, I'm sorry. I really Solomon in love, folks. Uh, best wishes to the the Kincaid legacy. They're still painting, by the way. Uh, Thomas Kincaid still has uh, some henchmen uh, in a studio somewhere uh, churning them out. Uh, I have a DC Heroes in Gotham City puzzle, ostensibly by the uh, late Thomas Kincaid. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure how I reconcile that uh, in my mind. But anyway, okay, so we're already talking about Thomas Kincaid. Anything else about sentimentalism? Yeah, I think we're talking about this more as a theological issue rather than just like, are you sentimental about things in your life you know do you, do you like sentimental movies or do you like uh are you, are you sentimental about keepsakes and and that sort of thing I, I think we're talking more about how we see the world how we see people how we see the church and less about just you know knickknacks and that that kind of thing but it's more about an attitude towards other people is that's kind of what we're going for right oh that's a good one i i often have when i think of the word i i think of the loki quote from the first avengers where he says something, I think he's talking to Black Widow and he says something about this is the basest sentimentality. Well, that's a villain talking. It sounds like a great quote, but that's him talking uh, to her, trying to overthrow her hopes and dreams of working for the good guys, if I recall the scene correctly. But he's a villain. 
villains often accuse the heroes of being sentimental just because the heroes believe in good things, good virtues and actual heroism. So yeah, we're not overthrowing that by any means. We're not coming in here with the nihilism and the grim dark. Uh, some might call us sentimentalists just because we are believers in Jesus Christ uh, who believe in things like resurrection and family and commitment and things like that. Uh, some bad guys can hate sentimentalism just because they hate good things. And we are certainly, certainly mm -hmm. not there. Yeah. And I just, uh, and our listeners can't see this. Maybe we can put in the show notes, but I just created a star Wars Thomas Kincaid painting and it's pretty epic. It's, uh, I'll just describe it. I mean, it, it's the usual style of, you know, kind of glowy foggy lights and this, uh, nature scene and kind of these ancient, you know, architecture mixed with uh, very futuristic looking buildings, R2-D2 that's larger than life. He's like four times the size of a human. Lots of kind of blurry people walking around, a guy holding a laser gun and, uh, you know, the, the light shining in from the clouds. It's pretty amazing. Like, I would love to see real images like this, though, created by the real Thomas Kincaid. Like, I don't really want to go to an AI tool. Like, I would love a, a painting like this. I'll just be honest. Well, I'd love to think that uh, uh, <laughs> Thomas Kincaid, uh, despite whatever issues he may have had, did make it to heaven. And then someday in the new heavens and new earth, he will get one of those cottages uh, because it's <laughs> not a world uh, that never had a fall, but a world that is now recovered from the fall. And he has a little smoke curling out of the chimney uh, and the little stone fence uh, and the little wabbits uh, hopping around uh, in the wildflowers. <laughs> okay, let's go to chapter one. If we're going to get stuck on that, it's an evocative image, right? And there's a reason why his paintings have been so popular. Uh, I would say, though, that largely uh, they're definitive of the old sentimentalism, a kind of an earlier version of sentimentalism as if a religious impulse, uh, not just liking things or liking virtue. But I would say that this old sentimentalism, uh, particularly in regards to Christian-made fiction, a Christian-made fantasy in particular, defines people as mixed, churches as good, and the world as mixed. There's one other definition that they have uh, that is kind of implicit, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, that's why it's kind of hard to define what we mean by sentimentalism. That's why we're going in for the Kincaid paintings. So imagine a Thomas Kincaid painting. If you've seen one, I don't think we can put one in the show notes because of rights issues. Maybe if you add an ATAT -AT Walker, uh, <laughs> either AI or just Photoshop, maybe that makes it common property. I don't know. Then it's a meme and then there's no rights whatsoever, right? Okay, so Thomas Kincaid was an artist uh, who started uh, a big industry painting uh, cozy forests and cottages uh, and friendly city streets uh, that have been washed with rainwater. And there was something about the paintings that some people couldn't put their finger on, but it just seemed to be kind of sentimentalist. Like something's off, uh, at least, uh, you know, high art critics would say that. But I think also some Christians would say that uh, the images were kind of nice as a screensaver uh, in that one old PC that we had in our basement when I was growing up. Uh, but it didn't seem to be high art. And yet I'm not like Zach faithful listener. I'm not a high art guy. You know, I like superhero movies. I will watch anime. I'm not a high art guy, but I, I like what the high art people at, at their best are going for. Mm. You know, they want art that reflects and reflects something special or significant or unique about the real world or how the world should be. Uh, people who were bothered by this kind of sentimentalism were not alone. Sometimes they'd call it sentimental. Sometimes they'd call it something else. I think that actually Kincaid himself, uh, who's uh, now deceased, uh, he was in an interview with Christianity Today in uh, two, the year 2000. Uh, the article's behind a paywall, 
uh, but the search engine uh, got a quote out of it for me because I remembered uh, three particular words about his artistic drive uh, from here. He says, quote, I love to create beautiful worlds where light dances and peace reigns. I like to portray a world without the fall, end quote, a world without the fall. I think he puts his finger on it, whatever, whatever his motives for making this, uh, this kind of art or whatever anybody else's motives. If you're a Christian creating stuff, often, I think you see this problem here, a world without the fall, but our world did have a fall. Now, someday the world will not have a fall. Uh, we call that resurrection and we're moving into the, the resurrection season here as we're recording this about to celebrate resurrection Sunday in a couple of Sundays. Uh, that world will have recovered from the fall, but it did have the fall in the past. Uh, Kincaid's paintings, I would say, would show a world that never had it, a world that's basically good. Uh, the bunny rabbits are, rabbits are hopping around. Uh, they're not going to get stepped on. Uh, they're not going to get uh, tangled up in anything and die. That's just not a reality in a Thomas Kincaid painting. So that's kind of the difference there. And I think that really goes to the issue of the kind of sentimentalism we're talking about. Uh, older Christian fiction kind of fell into the same trap. Uh, that's why we disclaimed at the beginning, we're not talking about clean fiction, but it's kind of the theological impulse there. The fall really wasn't so bad, you guys. Uh, the world is mixed. People are at best mixed. Uh, and the church is good. Uh, there's really nothing really evil out there in this view of the world in uh, these kinds of books. And I will say, Zach, uh, we've talked about this off air, but I have read these books that show struggling characters in some realistic scenarios, a lot of social dramas and some Christian movies have also been like this, uh, but it's effectively a world, not, not without the fall maybe, so even Kincaid went a little far there, about a world where the fall wasn't so bad. Uh, so you get some wish fulfillment going on. Uh, you get some characters in some Christian fiction uh, that are just trying to find themselves. Uh, maybe they backslid from the church, uh, they had something sad happen to them, uh, but not too sad, uh, lest the reader be too uncomfortable. And usually they end up like uh, in some of these, like, you know, they go to a small, wholesome town, kind of a bit of a hallmark uh, aesthetic there. Uh, it may not even be Christmas, but they go on a quest to find themselves and to learn to love again and to let go and let God. Uh, maybe they go to a church, uh, maybe they don't. But either way, the message of the story is, yes, you poor struggling character, God really loves you. And the character reacts, uh, probably puts his hand to his chest or her hand there and goes, how could a loving God love me? Uh, and it's a little bit sentimental there because again, the fall isn't so bad and thus the human heart isn't so bad, uh, which is a direct contrast to very strongly worded scripture verses in Romans and other books about the heart being deceitful above all things. There is trauma, there is suffering that we don't, uh, that we aren't to blame for, but there's also suffering and trauma and sin and sin's consequences that we are to blame for. It's all mixed up. Uh, the fall is actually worse than we thought. I just got done with the Genesis course and there's just so much evil in there, yet good at the same time. But it, that's the kind of sentimentalism. I think it really attacks the doctrine of the sin nature, the fall, the curse. The curse means there's some stuff, you know, if you step on a thorn, well, maybe you should have watched where you stepped, uh, but it's not your fault specifically. You didn't sin by stepping there, but Adam and Eve sinned. And so you get thorns and thistles that hurt people and it's not their fault. But then you also get issues of generational sin or 
other things that are people's fault. A good Christian work of art, a good Christian-made fantasy will reflect this reality, uh, but a bad one just won't. And I'm not going to go pick on older Christian fiction, but it was an issue or has been an issue. Uh, and as such, I think that's one legitimate reason that uh, previously Christian fiction has gotten a bad rep for not being realistic and instead being sentimentalist. Okay, I think I'm going to deconstruct your entire criticism of Thomas Kincaid right now with two words. I use Thomas Kincaid as a jump off point. Please <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. New Earth. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, but I deconstructed the deconstruction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I said earlier is that it's not so much a world without the fall. It was a world that never had the fall. If, oh, okay. I mean, see, that's why I say, hey, Thomas, I want, I want the late art master, <laughs> Thomas Kincaid, to have that cottage on the new heavens and new earth. And he'll yeah. be sitting in that cottage and he'll be remembering all the struggles that he went through, uh, all the things that he had to do. Some people would say he compromised his art, you know. Uh, I, I would support him going on painting stuff like that, but now put in stuff, though, that harkens to the fact that we did have a fall at one point. We did have a fall at one point, and then guess who came to fix it? Jesus Christ. That's the main issue with uh, artwork that minimizes the effect of the fall by Christians or anyone else. There's no place for Jesus there. People are mixed at worst. Church, if you have it at all, is basically good. The world is mixed, or you only show the pretty parts of it. Where's Jesus then? Jesus is great if he's there at all, but he's optional. Uh, you just need Jesus uh, to fix a few things, but otherwise your life was going pretty good. You had a nice cottage. You had a nice career. Uh, maybe you went to a fantasy world and came back, and just Jesus just gives everything a little upgrade uh, rather than you know uh, saving your soul and then the entire planet uh, from sin and damnation and other consequences of sin. Uh, the main issue with this kind of sentimentality is that it overrules the absolute requirement uh, for redemption through Jesus Christ, and thus it compromises the gospel. That's the main issue with it. Uh, not so much that it's just ick and it's not good art. Uh, it's a, it does become a gospel issue there. But yeah, New Earth, New Earth, there, there won't be a fall anymore. But then we, we did have it before, though, and we'll always yeah. remember that. To quote him accurately, maybe he's not painting the New Earth. That's how I see it, I see these paintings as this is what the earth is going to be. I think what he is painting is an alternate earth that we never really had because Adam and Eve sinned pretty much right away. So we never had a world without a fall. And so it's sort of this alternate reality. I think the visceral reaction against it is it, it basically it's over-realized eschatology. There you right? go. There you go. And, and I've seen this play out in other forms, not artistic forms. I've definitely seen that play out in some churches that, that had this over-realized eschatology that, uh, you know, Jesus is already setting up his, his kingdom now. Like, we're already in the kingdom. There shouldn't be any sin. There shouldn't be any conflict. And they don't really know how to handle when there is sin and conflict or just when they fall short of their own goals. And so I, I, I definitely agree that this kind of sentimentalism is very damaging because it really is like you are living in a fantasy world, not the real world where we are still fallen. Like we, we do have sinful flesh that's at war with our spirit. Like Paul talks about in, um, uh, Romans seven and you know, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Why, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Uh, 
why can't I do the things I really want to do? You know, why is there this war happening within me? And yeah, I, I think the best uh, stories will reflect that. And so the, the stories or the sermons or the church policies um, or sort of the attitudes of people that, that betray that, I, they, they rub us wrong because it's, it's sort of the um, uncanny valley effect. It's like, this is painting a picture of someone, you know, literally or figuratively that doesn't really quite exist. It's so close to what exists. Like, cause you would think, Oh, as Christians, you know, why, why are we still sinning? Like, don't we have the Holy spirit? He who lives in us is greater than he who lives in the world. But see, this is why first John was written. Cause he said, if, if you say you have no sin, you're lying. <laughs> deceive yourself and the truth yeah. is not in you. Yeah. So if you paint a world without sin, could it be said to be deceptive, whether it's an actual painting uh, or it's a fantasy novel that minimizes the severity of the fall, either in this world or another world? Yeah. Is that and deceptive? I, mm. And I, I think with stories, we can be a little more critical than with paintings, you know, because a, a painting or a photograph, it's a moment in time. Yeah. I can view a Thomas and Kane painting redemptively, just like you were saying, Zach. You could say, well, here's a picture of a cottage from the new earth. You know, I've got the theology backing up a reinterpretation, a reimagining or redemptive view of that painting. And that's why I don't, I don't hate, I don't, yeah. I don't hate a sentimentalist painting. I think there's another form of the sentimentalism that shows up in ministry a lot. And it's, it's sort of this attitude of, if I could only say the right words, oh, that yes. person would get saved. Uh huh. And on, th this is not like, this is not a partisan kind of thing. I, I think this happens with a lot of people. If I could only take that person aside and whisper exactly the right words that they need to hear, they would turn their life around or they would become a Christian or they would walk with Jesus or they would stop doing this or that. I, I think that's a lovely thought. <laughs> I just don't think people are that simple. I think human behavior is much more complicated than that. This is why we have psychologists because the human mind is extremely messy. <laughs> and there's a funny version of this. It's a um, skit from, I believe it was Mad TV, where a woman is talking about how she's claustrophobic. She has this fear that the walls are going to close in. She's going to be shoved in like a small, tight space that she can't escape. And the therapist is like, well, I, I have a simple solution for you. Stop it. <laughs> and he just continues on saying that. Just stop it. Stop thinking that S T O P I T. And then she's like, what kind of therapy is this? And he's like, okay, how about this? Stop it or I'll shove you in a box. <laughs> and it's just, it's so comical, but it, like it, it really captures that, that sentimental psychology of just like, oh, if, if I just say these magic words, it's going to cure this person. And it's, <laughs> it's so silly because it, it doesn't really work. We all know it doesn't work. And so it, it's just great to see that portrayed as a joke. I think that folks who've been through an experience like that uh, can relay that sentimentalism. I mean, maybe that worked on you at some point. Maybe it was the simple solution. Maybe you really were backsliding and someone came along uh, with just a plate of warm cookies and a Thomas Kincaid painting. And then suddenly uh, you felt God's love for you. And that's all you really needed all along. Uh, and then someone, of course, because Christians like formulas. I mean, people like formulas. It's not just a Christian issue. You take that and you go, okay, well, that's the solution. That's the solution. Everybody uh, who's struggling out there has my backstory. I'm trying to be empathetic. I'm even trying to practice the golden rule to do unto others. So surely what worked on me is going to work on them. 
Well, this too is sentimentalism and it's unrealistic because people have all kinds of tangled, messy, tragic backstories. Uh, that's why we need fiction, good fiction at least, that gives us multiple different types of character backstories. You can start to empathize and imagine in different ways and not just see the world uh, as a bunch of uh, victims uh, who need to have a come to Jesus moment and learn to let go and let God and all of the rest of it. You need to see that there are multiple different ways that God can reach people and thus multiple different ways that we need to reach people. I think that's one way, too, that we can redeem some expressions of sentimentalism because there are real stories behind them. We don't want to come along with even our grimdark stories and say, well, you know, everybody has this terrible past and your sentimental painting isn't going to do anything. No, maybe grandma hung that Thomas Kincaid painting or likes that sentimentalist Christian-made novel uh, because she really resonates with that and because she's had an experience uh, that this story seems to reflect. Well, ask her about it. Uh, ask him about it. You know, let's learn to love each other, get to know one another. Uh, but that also means that those of us who are familiar with more complicated tragic backstories also need to share that the thing we think is sentimental won't always work, won't always work. That's why a lot of people, I think, are overcorrecting for the sentimentalism, but they're failing to question the main problem is that the wrong kind of sentimentalism says that the fall and sin aren't that bad. We'll get to that in chapter two in just a moment. First of all, uh, however, let's pause for our second sponsor of this episode, uh, an interesting subversion of a kind of sentimentality from author A.C. Castillo with her fantasy book, Once Upon a Ren Fair. I've been to a few Ren Fairs and some might seem sentimental, but that's not what happens to the heroine Keltia. She has a normal 17-year-old life, except that she was found on the steps of a police station when she was a baby, and she was born with green hair, and no one knows why. A fun day takes a fateful twist after a group of Ren Fair barbarians who actually seem dangerous start chasing her across the grounds. When she follows a handsome jouster, Emerson, into a hollow tree to hide, she finds herself in a fantasy land of giants, killer unicorns, powerful fairies, and dryads. Can Emerson help her find the key to return home, or will Keltia be swallowed up by this impossible land? You can get the Once Upon a Ren Fair paperback at Amazon and explore that in the Lorehaven Library. All the links at our show notes for episode 155, or you can go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I haven't read that book yet, but I did see AC Castillo at our event uh, at Teach Them Diligently uh, just over this last weekend. And it does seem to me a subversion of the sentimentality. Oh, unicorns, fairies, a magical land. Oh, wait. And then she said, killer unicorns. <laughs> well, that's a good kind of subversion there. Uh, it's a pleasant looking unicorn, like maybe jumped out at you from a uh, Lisa Frank notebook in 1994. Uh, but this one might actually skewer you uh, with that oh, uh, magical yeah. horn. It is a weapon, y'all. It does uh, can be used it for looks scary. purposes. I mean, it does I, look scary. Yeah, yeah. Unicorns could definitely be deadly. Oh, absolutely. And and that's uh, Jewel the Unicorn, uh, my favorite one from The Last Battle. Uh, he's a beautiful animal, uh, but he is a male. He is a battle creature, though, and he will run through Kalormans and uh, traitorous Narnian beasts with that horn. Uh, spoiler alert. Let's move to chapter two here, hastening along into the new sentimentalism. This will take a little time to define, but we are trying to get through it. And there may be more to say about this, but we're going to start the conversation. And folks, this is where it gets complicated, but we're against sentimentalism and sentimentalism is simple. There's still some complicated views here. And it goes back, I think, to our first episode in this series, the one where we were talking about church trauma. 
because again, required listening before this episode, maybe I should have said that first. Uh, if you have a church hurt backstory, and a lot of people do, or even if church was just okay for you, but you've heard a lot of these stories from others and you want to be empathetic to their experiences, go back and listen to that episode. We are aware that there's a lot of people who go for sentimentalism or a different kind against uh, as a result of their bad church story. But I, I think they overcorrect and swerve right back into sentimentalism in another way. Now, say that three times fast. Sentimentalism, sentimentalism. Okay, so maybe you had grandma with her Thomas Kincaid paintings uh, or you had grandpa with his other sentimental approach and you say, that's not realistic. They're ignoring the terrible things in the world, the racism, the abuse, the problems with the system, the fact that the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, a bunch of other lines here, a bunch of worldview issues, not just political issues. Try to avoid those. I think the main issue, though, of the old sentimentality, uh, the person who's trying to correct for that does not get the main issue. The old sentimentality had a problem with minimizing the fall, the fall, sin, the curse, human evil. It's not so bad, you guys. I think what happens is people will say, well, that church got things wrong by claiming to be all good, but the church is actually bad. Some people who are Christians are actually bad. And people, at least the people I know, people who are victims, because again, we tend to empathize with other people, uh, assume that they have the same story we do. People are basically good. The church and or religious system is basically bad because power corrupts. We talked about that in our uh, deconstructionism episode 153. Systems are bad. Governments are probably bad. The world is mixed, except the popular culture of the stories I like. And so what you said there earlier, Zach, you start in with the if-only statements. And we've seen these, I think, uh, from some professing Christians, including, I will dare to say, some Christian-made fantasy that we might otherwise enjoy, a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel uh, that goes into the same belief of the fall wasn't so bad. Sin isn't so bad. It's the church that's bad and or a religious system that's bad. And how do they get bad without the fall being so bad? Yeah, don't think about it too hard. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it is evil corruption all the way down. You know, some people say it's turtles all the way down. Well, it is evil corruption all the way down, but then you go back into doctrine and the need for doctrine. People will say, though, well, doctrine is bad. Well, doctrine just means truths about God and his world uh, from the scripture. People say that's bad. Doctrine corrupts, power corrupts, people are just hurting, uh, they just need to be loved. But, but then I thought we already went over that with the old sentimentalism, right? But it's still going on. Uh, and there's some uh, versions of Christianity, I don't mean particular uh, denominations or anything like that, and or some spinoffs from Christianity. I'll just very politely refer, for example, to Mormonism as a spinoff of Christianity. Uh, some call it a cult. I, I think I would just feel safe now calling it another religion. But we, we've been doing a little research about this, Zach, especially because, you know, there's lots of great Mormon neighbors uh, who write a lot of great fantasy. Uh, and we were talking about that as, uh, as friends, you know, just exploring some of the, the great Mormon authors we like. Uh, Brandon Sanderson has been in the news lately because there is this ridiculous Wired Magazine article that apparently was revulsed by him being so plain and boring and not apparently dark and nihilistic enough uh, that they just slandered him as if it's a sin to be basic, 
okay, so Brandon Sanderson's basic. He's also wildly successful. Uh, he's also been identified with what you'd call the Latter-day Saints organization or the, the old name for them. They don't like anymore as Mormons. But one shared characteristic I've heard about uh, from some of these fantasy novels is that a lot of them have this sentimentality about human nature. Humans are basically good. There's villains, yes, but the humans themselves are basically good. And I don't mean to pick on Mormons necessarily because there's some professing Christians who also believe this. There wasn't a fall. There was, or if there was, it wasn't that bad. Humans are basically good. It's the systems, it's the environment, it's other things that make us evil. And I think a lot of people resonate with that, especially if you are prone toward toxic empathy. And we see this in even some social media conversations. Probably the conversations resulting from this episode, Zach, will get it again. We'll see the assumption of everyone is just looking for something. Or if only we could something else. Who's missing? Who's missing then from these conversations? Once again, Jesus Christ gets kicked to the margins. It does become a gospel issue. This kind of sentimentality doesn't match the real world, not just because everything's all bloody and gory, but because the real world needs Jesus. He is not optional. The gospel is not just a friendly add-on. The doctrine of the gospel is something that we must have, and that doctrine does include reality about the world, that humans were born sinful and require redemption through Christ, and the world was sinful and were affected by our sin and also needs redemption by Christ. Uh, we cannot paint these pictures of a world with a weak or non-existent fall. Good fiction must be realistic, even if it's fantastical fiction. You gotta have the fall. You gotta have sin. Uh, you gotta have some kind of human depravity. It's not just about nice people versus bad people. It's about everyone being bad and redeemed by Christ's sacrifice. Okay, so a few things here. I think where we see this idea, this new sentimentalism, as you call it, is in this attitude today that some people have special knowledge because of their identity group. This is usually given to us not so much as a theory, but as an action point, like you need to listen to XYZ voices or ABC people are sacred or other people are blind. And so this is an example of standpoint epistemology that you only have uh, knowledge. You have a limited amount of knowledge based on your identity uh, and your, your category of, you know, who you are. You know, this is just another form of Gnosticism, really, which has been around forever. But I think, too, that a couple hundred years ago, there was the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So here's a quote. So many authors have hastily concluded that man is naturally cruel and requires a regular system of police to be reclaimed, whereas nothing can be more gentle than him in his primitive state when placed by nature at an equal distance from the stupidity of brutes and the pernicious good sense of civilized man. I forgot Rousseau was a sentimentalist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So th mm. this is where the idea of the noble savage comes from. This is from 1755. He wrote this. What he was repudiating was an English philosopher named Thomas Hobbes, who said, uh, so this was in the, um, I guess, the early 1600s. He said, quote, hereby it is manifest that during the time men live without a common power to keep them all in awe, they are in that condition which is called war. 
in such a war as is of every man against every man. In quote. So he he believed that men needed something to constrain them to to constrain their natural desires, or it would just things would get out of control, both personally and and on a societal level. So these are kind of the two competing views of Western civilization that we're still debating hundreds of years later. And I and I think it's terrible. And I I think this is uh, well, I mean it it's a natural thing that you would expect people to debate. What's terrible is when this comes into the church. And certain people are given favoritism because of their identity group. And they are the only ones that can tell you what a certain Bible passage means because of their lived experience. Okay. That's not at all how the Bible presents itself to us. That there's only one mediator between man and God. Now, certainly we learn things about the world through other people. We broaden our horizons when we meet people from very different backgrounds and very different cultures. But we're not constrained by our experiences in our knowledge of God. Like God has made himself available to all of us through Christ as revealed in the scriptures. So what's going on today is sort of like a new priesthood. Again, there's certain people that are holy and and better, and you need those people. Otherwise, you're not going to reach your full potential. And so, yeah, it's like people are good, but certain people are are more good. <laughs> it's like all are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes, and there will always be in this version of sentimentalism absolute good, uh, obvious good uh, heroes, and obviously bad villains. You know, in this case, the bad villains might be the powerful, the abusers, uh, members of a particular political or religious faction, or just the system. You can throw your hands up and say, "Oh, the system is to blame," because the system is an abstract, and then you really don't have to look anyone in the eye. I, I, that shouldn't work uh, when you get into fiction because fiction requires some kind of antagonist. And yet you, you've you seen, and I've seen some stories where the antagonist is broadened out. Uh, there's been, uh, there was at least a few movies, I'm trying to think of, of which ones, where, well, there is no uh, antagonist. It was just misunderstanding. Uh, it was just somebody got brainwashed or uh, somebody was misunderstood. Uh, some people I saw recently were like, man, remember back when there were Disney villains who were just villainous for its own sake, but they made sense. You know, they were obviously making evil choices and it wasn't just a misunderstanding. Uh, some people didn't like Frozen so much because uh, arguably Elsa did some very bad things and yet she, she maybe gets too easily forgiven. But uh, Frozen still has a redemption narrative in there. Uh, there's been some Marvel stuff recently. We've nagged at Marvel long enough, but... Uh, there is kind of this odd sense of morality where you can do all kinds of terrible things like Wanda and WandaVision, uh, but then at the end, you're just automatically deserving of empathy because you were grieving or you were traumatized. And it doesn't matter that you basically put an entire town on lockdown within your virtual uh, sitcom reality because someone else comes along who's badder and the bad person made you do it. There's always the absolute bad somewhere in this new sentimentalism and thus an absolute good, but the absolute good is rarely a wholesome Christ-like heroic figure, uh, the absolute good, as he said, Zach, uh, can get um, transferred to a particular group of people. And thus it's based on who's been through the most suffering historically and mm. recently. Let's make those people the hero. Let's make that group uh, the, the absolute good. Well, that sentimentalist, guys. Everyone is affected by sin. Everyone makes sinful choices and we're prone to idolatry. Yes, we're suffering victims as well, and some have suffered more than others, and that calls for special care. 
Uh, but even the person who has suffered the most, unless it's Jesus Christ himself, that person has also made sinful choices, uh, often as a response to the suffering, but sometimes causing it. Good reality, as well as good fiction, should not fall into the trap uh, of assuming that there's just a class of victims uh, who are always right. And sometimes uh, in fiction, as in reality, you know, even the villains have a point. The best villains will have something that motivates them where you can nod your head and go, well, there but by the grace of God go I. Uh, because scripture encourages us uh, not to let the villains walk all over us, but encourages us to also be introspective. My heart is also prone to villainy because there was a real fall, real sin, a real curse. I don't need special knowledge or salvation by empathizing with a certain group of people. Uh, I need salvation by receiving Christ's empathy for me. Christ is the only person who can save me. Again, it does become a gospel issue. Uh, you may not notice when you read a book uh, that seems to overthrow the need for Christ. Uh, but if you're a mature Christian, you're probably picking up on some of that uncanny valley stuff. I just want to give that uh, instinct uh, credence. You're probably correct. Something's gone a little wrong with the worldview underneath the story, and it's okay to say so. Doesn't mean you throw out the book or try to cancel the author, but it does mean that you compare a scripture, compare it to gospel, and realize, oh, this is kind of like that old style sentimentality that I was saying I didn't like. And maybe this author says that he or she doesn't like either, but here it is again, uh, minimizing the fall, whether it's a cozy cottage without a fall or never had a fall or a cozy group of victims that apparently uh, haven't been affected by the fall in their hearts either. Yeah. And I think you said the key word to unlocking this new form of sentimentalism, which is victims. It centers victimhood is sort of the the highest moral virtue. So let's talk about Marvel and how this has worked out with Marvel. There they are again, folks. Apparently yeah, we, we just hate Marvel now. Look, I want Marvel <laughs> to get better. I want Marvel to go back to, you know, classic phases one through three. We're, we're pulling for them, guys. They fired their VFX lady and now they maybe they're only cover. Well, and let's talk about why Marvel was so good in those first few phases. It's because you had a story of someone changing, like internally transforming. You had That's Iron right. Man going from this kind of ruthless weapon salesman that's finds out he's been selling to both sides of a conflict. And then he goes against that and, and takes more responsibility to, you know, he takes on a more ethical stance. You've got Thor who's this kind of spoiled brat and uh, he's stripped of his power and he has to gain virtue to get it back. And so again, it, it's that personal transformation. And then, you know, fast forward all the way to where, Avengers Endgame ends with what Tony Stark does at the very end. That's a huge difference from where he started off in Iron Man 1. Now, let's go into something like Captain Marvel, or like you said, WandaVision. Well, what's the message of these things? The message is, you are enough. You're that's perfect right. just the way you are. Always were. It's it was everyone else around you, bad. the system. It's yep. everyone else yep. that's so evil and bad. And if you did something wrong, it's because other people made you do something wrong. You don't really have control or responsibility. There's no consequences for doing something in your victimhood. That is such a horrible, boring message. Like It's a and, weak story. Yeah. And it, and it just doesn't mirror the real world. And it's, uh, who wants to watch that? Who wants to watch a perfect person that, first of all, does all these bad things and you're not supposed to think they're bad because it's not really their fault. I mean, 
we teach our kids when, you know, they do something wrong. So we, we have a Levitical system of punishment where they have to sacrifice a Paw Patrol toy um, if they break a rule. and Deeply modified they, Levitical yes. punishment, <laughs> just to be very clear, faithful <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so we have, uh, you know, one of those like big plastic jars and they have to deposit a Paw Patrol character in there that they lose for the month. Uh, if, if they, uh, disobey, you know, flagrantly usually, or do something really dangerous and they get it back the next month. Okay. But, but they've asked us at times, like when, when something like this has happened and there's a discipline issue and they say, you know, why don't I get that back? You said you forgive me. I said, I do forgive you. Our relationship is restored, but there are still earthly consequences for sin. Just like when you are an adult, <laughs> you could get into a car accident, totally your fault you destroy someone's car, they might forgive you. You might work that out relationship wise, but someone's got to pay for the car repairs, you know? And, it, and if you were the one that caused it, that someone is you. Earthly consequences are still a thing, even amidst reconciliation and forgiveness and even divine forgiveness. And so, you know, the reason these new movies from Marvel are so terrible is there's no, there's no consequences. Not, nothing really matters. And if, if nothing matters, then then what's the point of this story? Like it's, it's just a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. A lot of people have been critiquing the recent Marvel movies like Ant-Man three uh, for having a uh, bad uh, VFX. I think in this case too, the problem is also a virtual morality. It's not just the uh, virtual reality, but virtual morality. And Zach, you've already hit on the, the solutions there. Consequences, healthy consequences. We'll get to that in just a moment in chapter three. First of all, you can learn if you are an author of these stories or an aspiring creator of fantastical stories and you're a Christian, you can learn how to make realistic yet fantastical fiction, hopefully not the sentimental stuff, at the Realm Makers 2023 conference. Hundreds of writers who create fantasy, science fiction, and other stories will join this Christian-led organization, Realm Makers, for the 11th annual conference. That is this July 2023 from the 13th through the 15th in St. Louis, Missouri. I've been there before, gone to every Realm Makers except two, for which I'm very regretting of that. But you can go or stay because it's also a live streaming event. You can register at realmmakers.com to attend in person. That's at the Sheraton Westport Chalet Hotel in St. Louis. Or you can live stream on the dedicated Realmsphere social network. Realm Makers co-owner and CEO Rebecca P. Miner says, we at Realm Makers have enjoyed the privilege for over a decade of connecting Christian creators to one another and to opportunities in the publishing marketplace. We're not just about bringing expert faculty to the conference for teaching, although that's one of the pillars of what we do. We've also discovered that a writer's success is tied into relationships one way or another. The annual conference offers a supportive environment where authors can take the next step in their creative journey. You can learn more in our news release linked in our show notes or register at realmmakers.com. Get the link as well in our show notes at lorehaman.com slash podcast sponsors. Also a good link there. Zach, let's move to chapter three. Uh, we'll spend a little less time here, but it's still important to offer some hope. We're not just going to throw up our hands and go, well, dang, those sentimentalists. Our mission at Lorehaven, and I think the mission of any faithful Christian fan or creator of these stories is to stay grounded in reality. And that means that every fantastical fiction work will also in some way uh, be based in a coherent Christian worldview. I think that phrase comes from the Enclave Publishing uh, founder and president, Steve Lobby. A coherent Christian worldview will rightly define things like the fall, thorns and thistles, the things that we suffer for that are not specifically our fault, 
but also will define the condition of our hearts and the condition of the world. In a biblical worldview, yes, people started out good, but as you said, Zach, there is a character arc. Uh, You're not just staying good the whole time, uh, afflicted by the bad boss guys. People started out good, yet we are corrupted by sin. Sin starts in our hearts, is not thrown in there from outside. Sin makes our hearts originally dead in trespasses and sins, uh, to quote the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. Yet we can be redeemed. So there's the character arc, Zach, not just in a good Marvel movie, but uh, in good reality. We started out evil, yet we require Christ's salvation to be redeemed. And now, guess what? We're not totally evil anymore. We can start to be more like Jesus. Our character arc has begun. The hero's journey is underway. And a good fantastical story with or without a specific Christian character can show this. Uh, As for the church, uh, the previous sentimentalism, uh, the old kind, like made it out to be this wonderful shining place where nothing bad ever happens. And the the new kind of sentimentalism kind of throws all that out uh, because it's all just a bunch of abusers and power mongers in there. But the church is at best, I'd say, mixed, uh, mixed positive. Uh, my church is great. Your church may be great. A uh, faithful listener, your church experience may not be so great uh, because the church can be corrupted by idolatry. There's still sinful people there. I don't mean to throw up my hands and say, well, get used to it. It's a hospital for sinners. No, the church is, uh, is a recovery ward. Uh, you are recovering from sin. Uh, if you're still sinning and they, they haven't kicked you out yet, then that's a bad church. You need to have a look at your membership requirements because the church is supposed to be made up of redeemed saints who are taking it seriously. Uh, The church is a discipleship training academy. One way or another, uh, through the preaching of the gospel, through the singing, through the fellowship, through the acts of service to your community, uh, the church should be a place of redemption. That's the story arc. Uh, People started out evil, uh, they are redeemed, they join a church, and then they're demonstrating how they ought to be redeemed. A fantasy story then should show struggling people who are heroes getting together in some kind of group and training for their mission in this fantasy world. I love those kinds of stories. Or it's a superhero team. Uh, Secular stories also show this kind of church-ish dynamic. You find your people, you link up, you get your found family together and your actual families together, uh, and then you go on mission. Uh, I think that's the right kind of correction for sentimentality. Uh, As for the world... Uh, the world did start out good, but then Genesis 3 happened. We get the fall. It's real. Uh, the world echoes back the consequences of sin, human sin. Humans put the sin there. It originally is not the world's fault, uh, but the world is not this happy place uh, with the smoke curling out of the Thomas Kincaid stone chimney. Uh, it might be someday or it will be someday. And then I think we'll get cottages like that. But you've got to go through the thorns and thistles first. The world, however, can be redeemed. And then what do you know at the end? It is not therapy, not a special group of people with special knowledge, uh, not niceness, not uh, happy paintings or sentimentalist art. The only solution to this fall that was actually terrible and does threaten us is Jesus Christ. He's not optional, uh, barely in the margins of a Thomas Kincaid painting. Uh, He's not optional. Uh, a nice way to get change in the world, according to the new sentimentalism. Jesus Christ is essential, and any religion, whether or not it calls itself Christian, cannot make him optional. You need Jesus Christ. He's the absolute hero of reality, and he needs to be the hero somewhere reflected in the best Christian-made fantasy fiction or other kinds of fiction. 
Uh, I think Zach, uh, you mentioned earlier, like some, some sentimentalist attempts. I had a great article I found at mere orthodoxy, actually the blog there by Jake Meador on March 22nd. I might link that in the show notes. I'd love to see more uh, from him or anyone else about this. Just kind of waking up and realizing, Hey, we've been buying, like we're trying to overcorrect uh, for, we're trying to correct for real issues, for example, of mental health and trauma and things like that. Things that we talked about in our episode 152 of this series, but we're going a little too far with some of the language that is minimizing the problem of sin. Uh, we've got to start thinking in biblical categories. Don't just call it uh, suffering or trauma if it is indeed sin. It's not just inappropriate. It is sin. You've got to use that terminology. I think that's part of it, too. Uh, I'd love to see more Christian fantasy that will use words like that, even if they may sound spiritual or they may have some kind of Sunday school connotation. Maybe not call it sin, but call it evil. Just call things what they are. Uh, and then if you are making the sin, if you're reflecting the reality of sin in the world in a fantasy story, then the goodness is going to be even more awesome. Uh, you have just deepened the colors, sharpened the resolution there. Uh, instead of this kind of a fuzzy portrayal of reality, everything is presented far more crisply, if that's a word. Uh, those are the kinds of stories that I love personally. Uh, they're the kinds of stories that are going to resonate, I think, with more readers because they are realistic, uh, not just by the gospel realistic standard, but by the standards of realism that we see around us if we're paying attention. And then also, it's just going to be better art. Uh, if you're looking for artistic excellence, then sentimentality is going to weaken that. Uh, avoid the, that kind of sentimentality at all costs. Uh, pursue Christ, and then you get better, more realistic creativity. I think an excellent example of this third category here is The Chosen, which we've talked about many times on this podcast. And specifically, there's an aspect of The Chosen that our Lorehaven graphic designer, Jenneth Dick, talked about her article. Her article is called The Chosen Succeeds Where Woke Stories Fail. And she says this in the first part of her article, quote, the Chosen presents biblical characters who have autism and disabilities. These men and women come from many ethnic backgrounds. They're all deeply human with different hopes and traumas. Many struggle with selfishness and prejudice. Some are rich or poor, but all of them need rescue. So this is what makes the show so good, is that it shows a wide diversity of people that are all sinful <laughs> in different ways. And they all need Jesus to transform their lives. There's no one that's better or worse than anyone else. They are all in need of salvation. It does that so well, Stephen, because it doesn't let anyone off the hook because of their background or because of their experiences or because of their victimhood or because of their other advantages. It says everyone needs Jesus and it, it shows people that are broken in, in very different ways. And and I love that it doesn't shy away from it. I mean, I remember at one point kind of recoiling a little bit like, man, these disciples, they just bicker about everything. Oh, but I guess they really did. And I they guess they really did. And I guess we still really do today. <laughs> like nothing, you know, that, that is human nature very well portrayed. There's so many moments when, when Jesus has to correct someone or when they just look so foolish compared to what Jesus is doing. I, I think the, the clearest moment of this is when Jesus has been busy all day healing people and they're all fighting over various things. And then he comes back to the camp and, you know, the chosen really focuses on the humanity of Christ without diminishing his divinity. And Jesus comes back in the camp, just absolutely exhausted. 
and he's he's sweating and he just he's about to collapse and they they see him and they're like what have we been doing this whole time why are we fighting over this stuff like my gosh it's so petty what we care about compared to what Jesus is doing so he he doesn't even say a word to them but just his very presence and his character convicts them again that happens over and over in the story there is moral conviction no one gets a pass yeah you see the glory of Jesus Christ even in a fictionalized a dramatization of the gospels more when you're seeing uh, the non-glory of the human beings, uh, there are no special people, super special people with special heroic abilities or special suffering that unlocks them as the heroes uh, in The Chosen, just as in reality. Uh, you don't want to dim the glory of Jesus by grabbing some of the light from him and sticking it on uh, to a flawed human being. Uh, that's just not realistic. And plus, it looks weird. There's an uncanny valley effect. There's something not right about the eyes. Uh, that AI artwork has an extra finger or six. Uh, <laughs> there's your AI, Zach. Hey, we're going to do an AI episode, by yeah, the way. We have there's, to. Some, there's a kind of sentimentalism about some of that AI art, by the way, uh, that just makes you think, oh, that's just not quite human. And that's really the main issue with uh, with either the old or the new sentimentality is it denies the reality of human nature. It, it just does. Uh, and thus, it's going to lead to weaker stories because stories are supposed to take all that's good and bad and mixed about the human nature, turn them up to 11 and set it loose in an imaginary world so that we can see things more clearly, not less. If you obscure that reality, then the fantasy is bad uh, and it will start to drag down your view of the real world. Uh, it's going to start leaking in because imagination is powerful. Uh, and then after a while, you might go into some other fantastical foes, uh, including the one we're going to talk about in our next episode to wrap up this fantastical foes series, at least for now. More on that in a moment and more about sentimentalism. I know you're thinking it, so definitely reach out and let us know. I wish we could spend more time on that. Email us at podcast at lorehaven.com or tag us on the socials. We'll post this on the Facebook, on the Twitter, on the Instagram. It's an important topic to explore, and we're by no means through with it now. Uh, if we thought we were, I think we would also be sentimentalists and think that we could just resolve this inside an hour of podcast time. Zach, let's move real quick to our mission update at Lorehaven. It has been a busy week for us both. For those who don't know, Zach and I actually live in the same area, so we were able to be at the Lorehaven booth at the Teach Them Diligently Homeschool Conference just north of Texas and thus near our Austin, uh, Texas headquarters. Great event. Uh, not sentimentalism, though. It's wonderful to work uh, with uh, all these people who are real and who you can see the flaws and struggles. The more you get to know these fantastical Christian creators, uh, and yet also you see the light of Jesus in them. These are realistic people, but also on fantastical mission. Uh, we saw James Hannibal with the Light Raiders booth, uh, Kara Swanson and our Lorehaven friend uh, Josiah DeGraff uh, with the Author Conservatory. Uh, Zach, you and I met uh, fantasy author, the prolific Chuck Black, and we're going to see if we can get him on here on the podcast at some point. Uh, he gave us books and everything. It was great. Really nice guy. Uh, lots of allies there. Uh, we're looking forward to connecting with them more, and maybe you'll be hearing from more of those folks here on the podcast in the in the future months. Uh, last week, we reviewed a middle-grade fantasy called Please Return to the Lands of Luxury. Everyone loves that cover, and the premise sounds great, too. Uh, our reviewer really loved that book. Uh, next week, uh, this week, actually, as this podcast episode releases, we're going to review the aforementioned sponsored fantasy Once Upon a Ren Fair by A.C. Castillo. We got that in there. Our reviewer liked that one as well. Uh, upcoming articles, I teased one uh, last week, but because of conference prep, I couldn't get to the editing. 
about uh, Tisha Messing, our, uh, our one of our review team members and the Lorehaven Guildmaster. She has a guest article now on how parents can disciple their children using dangerous books. So not too sentimental there, but also a call for discipleship. And we have a new writer coming on board, uh, A.D. Sheehan. Uh, he's got a guest article coming up, too, in April. I'm going to explore how Christians can respond to this sense of media malaise with some fantasy franchises, uh, what stories we can enjoy instead. Also, we have uh, upcoming events, uh, Teach Them Diligently Pigeon Forge. I'm going to be there in May. I'm also going to go to the uh, Florida Parent Educators Association Conference in late May in Florida, joining our friends at the Realm of Makers Bookstore there. Uh, and again, you can subscribe free and get uh, updates at lorehaven.com. Join the Lorehaven Guild for our next uh, upcoming book quest as we finish up the Charles Williams War in Heaven. We've got another one on the way. Monthly book quests in the Lorehaven Guild exclusive server on Discord. Over at our comm station, we got a note on Twitter from JJ Johnson, and he commented on episode 153, When Can Deconstructionism Threaten Christian Fiction? And JJ writes, quote, in 2021, my wife began experiencing church trauma and hurt at the church she worked on staff for 15 years. I became angry, bitter, and dangerously close to walking a road to deconstruction in 2021 and early 2022. Seeing her hurt, my discernment was lacking and the philosophy felt attractive. Deconstruction preys on the vulnerable, hurt, and promises much but lacks fulfillment. Deconstruction doesn't develop your faith, it destroys it. And much like John 10.10 says, it will steal, kill, and destroy. 2 Peter 1.3 informs us of what we need. We need Christ himself. My wife and I kept everything off social media during that time, only speaking to close friends who loved, provided the prayer and counsel we needed. If you are struggling, hurting, or find yourself facing bitterness from trauma, know that I understand. Deconstruction is not the answer. This is a highly recommended episode. End quote. JJ, thank you so much uh, for the kind words about this show, but praise God most of all for how he walked with you and your wife through that. It sounds like a very difficult time. As Stephen has said, you know, we started this whole series about church trauma that is very real, that people do go through. And man, this, this is such a powerful example that I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about what y'all went through, but I'm so glad that uh, although that path was attractive, as you said, you stayed away from it. Thank God that he kept you close and he kept you in the word. And you're right. What we need is Christ. We need more of Christ and we don't need less of church. We, we might need a different church and that's fine. We might need to make some other changes, but this path of unraveling things and, and mocking things and just uh, clowning them, it, as we talked about in that episode, uh, the, the cynicism that goes with that. Yeah. All, all the ways that that untangles us it might feel good, as you said, but it really doesn't help. So thanks for your note. Thanks for sharing that. To our listener, if you have a story you want to tell us or if you want to reflect on uh, this episode we've talked about with sentimentality, send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or feel free to comment anywhere on social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Next on Fantastical Truth, we come to it at last, the great battle of our time. What might be the fastest growing religion in the world? Based on their personal experience, some people would say atheism, Islam, or bad versions of Christianity or certain political religions. Yet I would say the world's fastest growing religion may be one that we would call here sexualityism. 
This refers to strong belief in one's own sexual identity that often leads to false worship. One guest who has experienced with these beliefs and taken some heat for her views on this will join us to enjoin this foe. How might this belief of sexualityism threaten not just biblical Christianity, but even some fantastical stories made by Christian creators? Meanwhile, whether or not you have a church trauma story, whether you have fallen into one or the other kind of sentimentalism or seen that done, don't just overcorrect with another kind of sentimentality that falls into the same trap of denying the effects of the fall or particularly of the evil that starts in human nature. Correct with Christ instead. Uh, he is the only good that this world needs, is the only good who can save the human soul. He is not just optional, he is required, and he's the only one who will redeem our world and our souls and our bodies from the corruption of sin. It's to him that we look, not the false foe of sentimentality as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. 